Sometimes the shortest readings can be the hardest to live out, so we won't let the, the length of it uh, be our judgment today. So Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20 and 21, do not despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Do not despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. It might not surprise you, maybe it will, to know a little peek uh, into my, my childhood and personality growing up. But growing up as a kid, I often didn't like being treated like a kid. Maybe you had some of those experiences like, I, I want to be treated like an adult. Well, from a very young age, I felt like, don't treat me that way. That, that feels insulting. And so I remember as a kindergartner, our kindergarten teacher asked us to wear a special bracelet on our right wrists to help us all learn our left from our right. And that felt really unnecessary to me. I know my right from my left. Why on earth do I have to do this demeaning thing of acting like I don't already know my right from my left? And in the midst of kind of talking with my parents about it and such, uh, one of the days we leave school and uh, my parents owned this Nissan 300Z and, and we're in the car and the little voice that spoke through the car said, left door ajar. And my mom's like, hey Dallas, your, your door's open. I was like, no mom. That's your door. <laughs> and I, I was like, I know my left and right. I don't need to do this task. And so flash forward, I'm not sure exactly which year this is. And I'm going to try to speak in code for any children and families listening. Uh, but there's a kind of a story that we talk to kids about involving a famous Nicholas of sorts, dressed in red, uh, that felt a little belittling. I'm like, why are we acting like this story is still true? And so, unknown to my parents, one special night of the year, I had a little chain and lock, and I locked it around a fireplace in my house. And so the next morning when family is doing celebratory activities, I go and unlock this chain, which took a lot of the spirit of fun, I think, out for my parents. But from a very young age, I really valued, I was like, Let's test things. I, I want to know what's real, what's true, what's right. Um, and, and the truth is, is, sometimes we do that in church life and sometimes we don't. And science is often a place that we do that better. And so science, you know, we've been talking about science and faith. Science automatically works from a position of let's doubt things, let's test things. Um, it is curious like we talked about last week. but. If I think I might understand how things work, I don't really know unless I test it. And so I'm going to run all sorts of analysis. And even if I test it and find certain results, someone else will come behind me and they'll test my results. And it it really serves this kind of function of of living out, doubting, and testing to find truth. And so one of the major examples of, I mean, really every scientific example is an example of doubt leading to something new. Um, But one of the bigger ones is, you know, Isaac Newton had the the idea of gravity, and there's this kind of somewhat fake, somewhat true story about the apple tree, Um, but for Newton, he said that gravity worked, that every object in the the universe 
exerts a force that attracts other objects. And the larger and the more mass of an object, the more it attracts. And so since we're close to the Earth, it is much bigger than we are, and so gravity pulls us towards the Earth. And that worked very well. We did a lot of science and worked off of Newton's understanding. And then Einstein came along and really shook things up. And so it, it wasn't just a small change, but Einstein talks about uh, space-time like this fabric. Sometimes you get the images of fabric that's kind of stretched out, and you put objects on the fabric, and it kind of, kind of dents into it. Sometimes there's an image of a mattress. Uh, but if you put a ball or a marble or different things on it, it stretches the fabric a little bit more or less based on how much mass there is. And so Einstein was, was realizing that it wasn't just gravity about space moving uh, with gravity, but time actually changes with mass. And so that feels really weird. And probably as a thought experiment, you would just completely reject it because it just makes a lot of strange implications. Uh, you might have seen the movie that came out uh, by Christopher Nolan a few years ago, Interstellar, which was based on living out part of Einstein's science. That if you get close enough to massive objects, that time changes itself. And so in the story, humans are, these astronauts are trying to find a new planet for humans to survive on. And they test out this planet that's really close to a black hole. And a black hole is, is almost infinite mass and it creates a very big change to space-time. And so in the story, they're dealing with the effects of, if we go explore this planet, how will we know we can save humans back on Earth? Because every hour on this planet is seven years back home. And that sounds really weird. But that if you go down and you spend an hour on this planet, seven years go by for your kids and your grandkids, that people that you love might die, that your loved ones who are younger than you might age older than you, and that all sounds incredibly strange. And yet, you know, science doesn't just take Einstein at his word, you do tests. And so one of those tests last year, as they continue just to continually check on the math and check on the, the ramifications, there's a, a star that is near the massive black hole Sagittarius in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy. And this star has a certain color of light. It's a blue shade of light. That's the frequency that it shines at. And every 16 years, it revolves around this, this black hole. And so what they had to test was, would it stay blue? Or like Einstein said, would it affect time and it would change color? And it did change color to red, verifying what Einstein said. And so some of the weirdest, strangest things as you try to examine the universe, you do tests and you can find them to be accurate. And it takes somebody doubting the principle that everybody operates under to make a curious kind of proposal to test, to doubt, and to verify. And so science is all about doubting. But faith communities, we struggle with doubting. All right, I mean, we, we give a... We, we use it as a negative um, kind of insult about Thomas. How do you know Thomas the disciple? You know him as doubting Thomas, right? That phrase, just you just kind of live with that phrase, and we use that phrase as an insult to him, as how little faith he had that he doubts, right? Um, and so that kind of perspective of doubting kind of rules a lot of faith life, that if I doubt that that's, that's less than, we shouldn't do that. 
Um, Anne Lamott wrote that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness and discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. For many of us, we've exchanged our faith journeys for wanting certainty, which is never the promise. Uh, Faith and following after God, follow after me, see where I go. Uh, I am who I am. You know, there's not certainty there, but there is a life of faith there, and we often exchange that faith for let's not think about those things that make a little bit of doubt creep in. I'm just going to be certain and move about my way. But a lot of the New Testament is writers writing to church communities, facing ethical dilemmas, facing theological dilemmas, who aren't sure what to believe. And you get things like in 1 John and the text that we read today from, from Paul, things about you should test the spirits, test whether something's right or wrong. And so in our words from Paul today, do not despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. We kind of want to test only some things, right? Here's the bubble of sphere of things that I might test, but, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. And I love the, the kind of juxtaposition of those phrases that Paul uses there, right? Because you can doubt so much that you hold on to nothing, right? That, that you end up so cynical that you just can't accept anything. But Paul says, don't despise the words of prophets. So you're going to hear some things that might sound difficult, And it might be easy to dismiss. But test everything. Wrestle with it. And what is good, hold on to that. And so in the Christian tradition, we've had different ways of talking about how do I test things? How do I know what is true and what is good? And so uh, in in our tradition that we've kind of inherited, there's, there's a primary way that a lot of people talk about this. And that's kind of four categories of ways that we test things. One is by scripture. Okay, well, what does scripture say about this thing? And how do I use and, and, and listen to what, what the writers like Paul or, or what Jesus said? Or, or what, what does scripture say about this thing? And, and how do I understand what to do with that? Uh, but there's also tradition. Like, what has uh, the church said or done on this topic? What about reason? I don't need a scripture verse to tell me two plus two equals four. God gave you a brain for a reason. You know, like, we have reason capabilities, so use your reason. And lastly, experience. That the experience, that kind of following of the I am who I am that we talked about previously, as you follow God, as you are involved in the life of the community of God, how does that shape the way in which you uh, read scripture the way in which you are a part of the church tradition as the way that you think and reason. How does experience play into testing everything and holding on to what is good? And I think for many of us, we kind of just do that first category. That We, we don't actually just do that first category, but we think that we're just doing the first category of I'm just going to test everything only by scripture. Uh, what's interesting is that our scripture has stories of not doing that. <laughs> um, I talked last week about Acts chapter 10 uh, briefly about Peter and Cornelius. And I think we lose the like, power of that story. Peter is fasting and he's praying and he's thinking uh, and listening to God. And God gives him a vision 
of this blanket coming down from the sky and all types of animals on it. And, it said, and the, he hears a voice that says, take, eat. And Peter knows his Bible and says, ah, ha, ha, you're not tricking me, God, right? And he's like, this is a test. You made those things unclean. I will never eat that. I've never ate that. I'm not going to eat that. And three times, Peter is still denying it. He's like, no, 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 God. I know you said this. And like, don't we understand why Peter feels that way? I mean, that's what his, the, the scriptures of what God has said has handed him. Like, that's a dilemma to, to hear from a voice and you're like, is this God or not? All the while, knock, knock, knock on the door. Some, some friends and some people who are, are friends of uh, Cornelius, a Gentile, someone that Peter's scripture would say is outside of the family of God, someone who's an outsider, uh, who is unclean. Maybe I shouldn't eat with them. Maybe I shouldn't do these kind of activities. I should stay away. These people knock on the door and say, hey, we had a vision. We're supposed to go talk to you. Would you come back and speak with us at Cornelius' house? And Peter is still, I'm sure, wrestling with this. Peter goes. He goes to Cornelius' house, to outsiders, and he talks about who Jesus was. And the Spirit does not wait on Peter. The Spirit moves in the Gentiles. And then the question is, well, why shouldn't we baptize them? Not, can I find a proof text that says these outsiders are a part of the family of God? Peter's like, I guess this is how God works. And that is radical and, and life-altering. And I feel like we lose the dilemma and the challenges and the struggles of the early church wrestling with, what do I do with who Jesus was? How do I read these, these texts? How do I understand who God is now that I've encountered Jesus. And they wrestled and they doubted and they struggled and they had faith and a faith to spread the gospel in ways that we often fail at. You know, we have more resources than the early church ever had, and yet they often were much more faithful and effective at spreading the good news of Jesus. And so I think about throughout church history in ways in which we've had to wrestle with texts and wrestle with our experiences. And one of the ways that that came out in the last few hundred years is the ways in which slave owners used scripture that talked about keeping your place, don't try to get free if you're a slave. They used those texts to oppress people. And they did violence in the name of their reading of those texts. And so the church some slower than others, read those texts in new lights and advocated that Christ brings the equality and dignity of all, and they abolished those practices, but still wrestled with, what do I do with a text like this? And so in the midst of everyday struggles, each person worshiping with us has different things that they wrestle with, different things that they doubt, and trust and are all mixed up into. The church needs to do better about testing everything. Uh, some of the things that we need to test are obviously bad things, and we still fail at testing those things. Um, I'm going to 
talk about a phenomenon that's going on right now that is affecting churches in our country. Um, maybe you have heard, maybe you haven't heard of QAnon. Uh, if you did a Google search, you could find plenty of religious news sites talking about the way that QAnon has uh, been affecting church lives in America. But QAnon is a conspiracy theory that claims that there's a secret cabal in the government and the media and these other influential institutions that are engaged in child sex trafficking, cannibalism of sorts, and some sort of conspiracy for world domination and satanic human sacrifice. Now, if you really want to do a study, you can find that kind of conspiracy life at work throughout human history. It's not new, it's just new in the way it's expressing itself. Um, what kinds of strange things are lurking in this group? Uh, if you've seen the things about 5G radio waves as uh, meant for mind control or denying the reality of death of, you know, you can go back to, and see this in, in moments like the, um, like the Parkland shooting or Sandy Hook, uh, but more recently about George Floyd, uh, acting like they're all hoaxes. They're just actors and they, it's made make-believe or, you know, all sorts of terrible things, things about masks being there to hurt you. All of this with QAnon started in one of the slimiest parts of the internet world. It started from an anonymous poster named Q on 4chan, a site known for ethical murkiness at best, a site known for being involved in uh, child pornography or sex trafficking or terrible kinds of things or hacking or, or, or all sorts of unscrupulous things. This anonymous poster started saying that he had discerned and determined the way the secret society was ruling the world. Uh, he made some predictions that on a certain date, Hillary Clinton and her teams were gonna be arrested and this whole thing was gonna come to light and that date passed and they moved on to the next thing. But you might have heard the bigger news that came out when someone went and shot people at a pizza store because they had heard from this thing that people were doing child trafficking in the basement of a store that didn't have a basement. All of this conspiracy world in which people doubt everyday life but don't doubt the conspiracy has infiltrated into churches in our country. In our state of Michigan, a very large church in the Grand Rapids area showed a 10-minute QAnon video as a part of their worship service with all of this weird kind of stuff in the heart of their worship. Uh, a church in Indiana does a two-hour service of this kind of stuff. And even if we don't think institutionally about communities doing this, it is coming out of Christian Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts and people who are harming their everyday witness by holding fast to something that is easily disprovable, and why should I trust you if you are wrong about lesser things? How am I gonna believe you about who God is if this is the kind of fictitious work that you're gonna spread? I think that we are sometimes at risk in the church because we, we hey, don't be doubting Thomas, we don't like doubting things, and so we sometimes run in our curiosity of last week without any sort of check and balance of, wait, how do I test this? I should be curious, I should explore, but at some point, I gotta test everything and hold fast to what is good. 
And we often fall short on that. It's not just, though, about testing bad things. And I think we kind of use testing in that framework. If someone has ever said, hey, have you tested the spirits here? No one has ever said that and they think that your thing is good. <laughs> like, they're throwing that line out to you because they, they already think it's wrong and bad. Uh, and, and they're asking you to realize that that's the, the also truth as well. Um, but there are sometimes good things that we should test, that we should hold and, and wrestle with because there are good things that sometimes our image of God is too small. And there's like the version that we, we tell our children about God that has truth in it, but it's never fully the perfect picture. And so if we continue on in that image for the rest of our lives and never grow, we end up holding on to something that's not quite God. And so there are some things that are good that still need to be helped reshaped and reformed in our lives. And I can't help but return to kind of children's stories. Started talking about, you know, a special morning of the year and, and trying to test um, something I believe to be the case. We tell a lot of children a special story in our Bible that is also really weird to talk to kids about. Uh, maybe you've seen Noah's Ark as a common story for kids. Death of plenty of people and animals and stuff. And we're like, oh yeah, it's fine. It's a great kid's story. Um, because I get to draw animals, you know? <laughs> like that's, I think, why, why people like it. Um, there's some hopefulness in the story, but like you need to examine and test it and understand what's at work in this story. But so many of us just encounter the story as this good feel-good story or something like that God just is protecting and you're like, we got to deal with, with all of this. And so I think about in school, I went to a Christian school. We went on some trips that took us to some, I, I struggle with the language of this, museums of pseudoscience, let's say that, in which people were trying to hold on to some literal things and creating a science that's not testable and, and that the scientific community would laugh at as completely just inaccurate. Um, but to prove um, the atmosphere of the world pre-flood or all this kind of stuff about floods, uh, even though we don't see the geological evidence of worldwide floods in the last 10,000 years. But all of that work is I can't doubt the way I read this text. I've got to make up a system that can handle the fact that I don't test this thing. What's weird here is that the endeavor to hold on to this certain literalist reading actually makes us hold on to something quite difficult or less than of an image of God. Uh, because what you're ultimately wanting to hold on to is I want to hold on to God killing almost every single being on the earth. Like, that's an interesting endeavor to want to maintain. God, in that story, though, you have two options. God either just likes violence and is okay with it, obviously wrong, or the second one is God doesn't know how humanity will, will act and will respond and has to learn things. Because the story of the flood is God sees the human wickedness, God says, that's bad. Let's try this. Let's throw a flood out there. The flood happens, kills almost everything. Noah gets off the ark with his family. His family immediately sins, and God says, I guess humans are just bad from the start. 
well, I'm not going to do this again. Sorry, no more floods. I'm going to try a different strategy. So the picture of God is one that doesn't understand everything. He's trying things out and testing things out. And so when you read literally, you end up into, think about the ramifications of this whole system. Uh, I, I did a class earlier in this year as we were in the pandemic, which I'd love to spend more time with you and walk you through all of this. But um, this story is shaped by Israelite experience of exile, a people living in captivity in Babylon. The Assyrians and Babylonians had a lot of flood stories. Uh, one of the if not the oldest remaining piece of literature in human history, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, has a figure that's like a Noah figure. There's flood stories, there's sending out birds to see if there's dry land, there's an altar of sacrifice after the flood's over. All of the kind of mechanics of our story we see in Babylonian Assyrian stories. What is interesting is what the Israelite faith says about God while using the genre of a flood story. In this story, um, maybe as a comparison, think about Western movies. If you were watching a Western movie, you might expect there's going to be guns, there's going to be a gun draw, there's going to be a sheriff and a badge and an outlaw and hats and like there's things you expect to happen. And then the interesting thing about a story is how do I take those elements and do something new with them? And so the Israelites... So why did Babylonians think that God would send a flood and wipe out all of humanity? The gods thought humans were too loud and obnoxious. Get off my lawn. Right? That, that gods saw humanity and were annoyed by humanity and were irritated by humanity and that you don't matter, you have no value, you're obnoxious to God. And so I want to wipe out humanity because I don't really like humanity. And in the, in the kind of Babylonian stories, the flood happens. One of the gods reveals the secret mission so that the, the person can make their ark and survive. Afterwards, they set this altar and they make this offering. And then the gods realize, you know, I kind of like the smell of their offerings, though. And so they decide, well, we shouldn't kill anybody. And we do kind of like offerings. But the Babylonian stories end with, we still don't like humans that much. We need population control. And so their stories end with, let's increase infertility. Let's create celibacy. Let's do anything we can to reduce human population because we don't really like them that much. In that context, if you can imagine being subjugated and living as kind of slaves and living underneath an oppressive government who, who treats you like you are worthless... The Israelite story of who God is, is one that sends a flood not because he doesn't like humanity, but because wickedness, corruption, violence, evil is hard to tolerate. I want a good creation and this isn't it. How do I get to a good creation? So instead of loudness, it's evil and wickedness. But God cares for humanity and wants a good place for humanity. And ultimately in the story realizes floods are not the answer. God in the story is going to shift to Abraham. I want to call a family and I'm going to move through this family. And the, the apostle Paul is going to say that this family is not just by blood, but all who have faith are united into this family to bring about God's plan for a good creation. And somehow we get stuck wanting to argue about 
little things. What, a, what is the mechanics of the story? What is the science of the story? And you're like, who it says that God is matters so much more than wasting so much time on, on trying to create something that a scientist can go in a lab and just disprove. And we've pushed ourselves into some things that cause some of our young people to walk away from churches. Whether it's the QAnon stuff of seeing, man, this person was my, it's a parent, it's a, it's a relative, it's my Sunday school teacher, it's my pastor. They were the people who taught me who God is and what on earth is the stuff they're posting on their Facebook? How do I trust anything that they've given me when that is the kind of stuff that they share? And then we, we get into arguments and fights about things that you could just test and cause more drama and more fights and rush more people away. Paul invites us that if you believe God is good and God is faithful, that no matter what you test, if you test and you find what is good, that's not going to break your faith. It's a very fragile faith that thinks I can't test anything because if I test it, I'm going to fall away from this. Can I have the kind of faith that is curious enough to explore where God is at work in the world, what God is doing, and the kind of faith that is strong enough to test, say, how did I end up here? Is this good or not? Where is goodness in the midst of this text? And there's plenty of texts and plenty of our Christian church tradition to do that work with. And you can actually go back and read the tradition. Read church fathers in the 200s and 300s and 400s who are reading the book of Joshua of like, you know, I don't know if killing men, women, children, and animals is necessarily the way God wants to operate in the world. Maybe I should say genocide is wrong. There is plenty of people in the great tradition of our faith who have gone before you, who have tested their faith, and who have been faithful and spread the good news and lived their lives following God. What is it to accept doubt as a part of our faith journey? Hear these words again from Paul. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Please don't be cynical where nothing is real, where nothing is good, where nothing has value. Long to test and define where God and goodness are reigning. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. I, I hope that you'll join the great uh, collection of saints who have tested, who have been, faith, have been faithful seeking understanding. Uh, who have explored the reality and the truth of our good God. In a world suspicious of all sorts of truths, whether it's the truth in mainstream or the truths of, of the kind of hidden corners of thought in the world, test everything and hold fast to what is good. Will you join me in prayer? God, I know it's true of, of me and all of us that there are times where we would rather just be certain than be on this walk of faith with you. There are times in my life where I've uh, felt very certain about who you are for and who you are against. There are times where we have dismissed people uh, who you might have been speaking through. Lord, help us to listen to the prophets in our midst who speak your goodness, 
your love, your justice. Help us to dismiss and to test out the prophets who teach violence as a virtue, who teach lies as virtue, who teach anger as virtue. Lord, help us to test everything and to find you and your goodness. Lord, help us to be faithful on that journey. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray. Amen.